KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Please be showered. Please be showered. Please. Hello. Oh my God. Are you serious? I mean, you look awful. No, I'm doing great. I, I, I'm, I'm on the best programming sprint of my life. For the last 45 days, I haven't left my computer except to pee and sleep. Well, maybe leave once to wash yourself. Wait a minute. Where's Ian? No, no, we're not well, doing this. If we're he's not, not doing here, the power then why am I here? I'm gonna call him now, okay? Okay, well, I'm gonna go put a bra on since you need these meetings to be all fancy or whatever. It's not fancy to wear undergarments to a business meeting. You know what, just just go put on the bra. Put on the bra. Uh, it's unbelievable. It's like, it, just be human. Taking my cue from David Brittlesby of Mythic Quest, I showered and put on a bra for my Zoom interview with Megan Gantz and David Hornsby. She's one of the writers and co-creators of Apple TV's Mythic Quest, Raven's Banquet. And he's a writer and star of the show. And today, I'm leaving cinema behind to look at gaming and how to create a show while in quarantine. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. I've been watching a lot of movies and shows while in quarantine, and one that's proven particularly fun is Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet. It was co-created by It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's Rob McElhenney and Charlie Day, and it looks to a video game design company run by Ian Grimm, played by McElhenney, and the dysfunctional way his company runs as they try to keep their hit game, Mythic Quest, on top. In this scene from the Apple TV show, Ian and his head engineer, Poppy, argue about how a shovel she created for the game might end up being used. Do you have any idea what the TTP on an item like this is going to be? Yeah, it's going to be like... TTP, guys, is time to penis. It's the time it takes for a uh, player to use a new item to make a penis. Yes, I know what TTP is. Yeah, David, stop mansplaining. They're not gonna, they're not gonna make dicks, Ian. You give the public a shovel, they dig dicks. You give them a pen, they draw dicks. You give them some clay. Definitely gonna sculpt dicks. Ian, would you please tell my assistant to get into the booth? Oh, I don't tell women what to do. I allow them to make their own choices. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Ian, they're not gonna, they're not gonna turn them into dicks. I'm gonna actually put a limiter on it so they can't. Shovel with rules, that's really cool. Yeah, let's put as many rules in the game as we can. That's, that's super fun. That sums up the creative dynamic of The Office. The show debuted on February 7th, but had a bonus quarantine episode run at the end of May. I'm not a gamer, but I fell in love with the show because I could completely relate to the workplace humor and to the characters. But I was most impressed by the quarantine episode, which not only displayed amazing ingenuity in the face of producing the show from lockdown, but it also delivered a funny, sweet, poignant, and ultimately uplifting story without ever feeling cloying or calculated. Two of the writers for that episode were Megan Gantz and actor David Hornsby, who you might also remember as Cricket from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back with my interview with Megan Gantz and David Hornsby of Apple TV's Mythic Quest. Well, I have to say, one of the reasons I did want to talk to you guys and to somebody from the show was being in quarantine, we were looking for things to watch, and since my son is an avid fan of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, we found Mythic Quest. 
And I have to say that that quarantine episode was such a joy. <laughs> it seemed to hit upon everything that, you know, we're dealing with. But first of all, Megan, to start with, just give me a little background on how Mythic Quest started. What was the idea behind getting this show going? Yeah, well, it started because uh, a video game studio, Ubisoft, approached Rob and they were developing various film and TV projects and they uh, had the idea to set a, they were big fans of Sunny, and they thought that there was a show, uh, a workplace comedy set in the video game development world. And so they approached him um, about that and flew him up to Montreal to see their studio. And um, once he got up there and he started seeing the sort of cast of characters that it takes to put together one of these games, and also just sort of understanding the scale of video games and how uh, much bigger it is than the entertainment world that we're in with movies and television. Um, once he kind of conceived of all that. He realized there was a show there and he and Charlie started developing it and then brought in David and I. Um, and yeah, so that's how it sort of came about. Rob met an emasculated producer up in, uh, up in Canada and he said, <laughs> he called me up immediately and said, I have the part for you. <laughs> <laughs> so were any of you actually gamers before this all started? Was there somebody who, you know, had a had some insight into that world before uh, Ubisoft contacted them. David, you play FIFA. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not proud of my gaming history. It involves uh, breaking controllers and and whatnot. But no, I I don't think anyone was a hardcore gamer. N no, by any uh, any stretch compared to to actual gamers out there. But I think we all grew up playing games casually. And actually, Megan's uh, husband Humphrey is an, 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 a hardcore gamer, I would say. And we we tap him. So he's one of our consultants. He's one of the writers on the show. And he's sort of our, our one of our go to people that are the uh, uh, to, to, to check and verify what what we're doing and and to make sure it's and keep us on keep us honest. But we all I think we all had an interest in video games. But uh, it really gave us a, a good reason and good homework to uh, to go and, and play video games and say I'm working. And what was it that prompted Ubisoft to contact you guys? I mean, what was it that made them think doing a show about how games are created was something that might work or that might be of interest to people? You know what, it's funny, I don't know if you have this experience, David, but since I've become a comedy writer, I feel like lots of people have come up to me and said, oh my God, you have to do something about my workplace because it is wild and, uh, and you wouldn't believe what goes on in like my particular job. And it just so happens that I think Ubisoft was right about it being really fun and, and, and weird and, and sort of these big egos trapped in a world where nobody's paying attention to their names, but they all play the games, you know, um, it's, uh, we, we, we've, we learned that like, for instance, Grand Theft Auto as a franchise has made more money than Star Wars, but the people that are behind it that made it aren't as well known as the people that, you know, um, make Star Wars. So it's just, a it's for comically, it provides a lot of interesting opportunities there. Um, so yeah, I think that they were just, they were correct. And I think like, we also, once we started learning about it, we thought um, it was uh, a, a, something that could feel more universal, the workplace that they're in, could we could do it in such a way. And I think part of it is because we have a writer's room that's half hardcore gamers and half like people that are, you know, wouldn't consider themselves gamers. And that's why we try to make the, that's how we try to make the show more relevant to everyone. Cause you might see your workplace in it, for instance. Yeah. I think it's, it's, you know, you know, have, you have a good idea for a show when you feel like you can tell specific stories that you can't tell sometimes in other shows, ones that are both universal, but also give you 
uh, a very specific plots. And I think here with this world, we found that there's there's just so much to draw from that we can sort of mirror what's going on in in the video gaming industry as well as what's going on sometimes in our world. And you know anything from you know using a, a media platform, social media platform, for example, that connects uh, so many people globally and and the responsibility a company has, even though they say they're just an intermediary. Uh, which we explored some uh, women in gaming, uh, you know, and, and equality in the workplace. So I, there was there was just some some both universal but also very specific stories we could start to tackle. It's also um, a, a a culture much like TV and entertainment <clears throat> that is a cult of personality. And for example, my character is the executive producer of the show. At the same time, everyone and, and technically the boss of everyone. You know, I'm the I'm the go between. I'm the sort of the last person that talks to the headquarters in, in um, Montreal, but but Rob's character, Ian, uh, he is the cult of personality and ultimately that wins out. And there's just something really fun about that. And the, you know, the idea of obviously the narcissism and everyone being attracted to, no matter who's right and who's more responsible to the person that's the most charming. In a world of legendary heroes, one man will rise to take all of the credit. This game has something that no one else will. Me. And then even Ian's character is superseded by Pootie Shoe, who is the real <laughs> voice that gets to determine whether the gamers is successful or not. So all of these people in these billion dollar industries are all under the thumb of a 14 year old boy. And uh, that's funny to us, so. <laughs> well, I really admire how you do make it accessible to somebody who's not a gamer. I think the last game I played was Godzilla Wars and my son sold the game and then that was it. But. Um, <laughs> Like I said, I, it's like it's very accessible to me. Wait, wait, I, your I, son sold your video games? Is that what? You uh, no, it was it was his game, but it was the only game I played was oh. Godzilla War because I'm a Godzilla fan. And, oh, um, okay. And I was I've like, never... that's a reversal for <laughs> kids selling their parents. <laughs> <laughs> but my son and my roommate play games all the time, so it's funny because I'll be watching it and I really enjoy it. But then, like my son will point out something like, you know, mom, that's a clip from a real game or that, you know, that's referencing this. So obviously he's getting a different layer of it than I am, but we both are really enjoying it. So how do you kind of balance that? And, and what are the challenges of that? Uh, yeah, well, we just like, the, I mean, the makeup of the writer's room, for instance, as I mentioned, we, we made sure that we were balanced with gamers and non-gamers so that we can get the specifics correct. And we check with Ubisoft, for instance, on like the technological language and things like that. But then also make sure that people who aren't focused on that stuff still have a story to follow that they can get interested yeah, in. Yeah, I think we recognize that people ultimately, as much as you might like video games, the, the, the people tuning in aren't tuning in for the video games necessarily. They're tuning in for the characters and um a very small fan base for me um but i think growing i think growing. um no but uh but yeah i think ultimately they're they're, they're tuning in for the characters and and the, and the universal uh quality of of every storyline so again i think it's just the the um the workplace that gives us those specific storylines that help us tell very specific stories and use some of that great those great details and the world and um, helps guide us sometimes in the choices. Um, but ultimately, we, we want to tell uh, a sh a stories about interesting characters. In fact, we even have that episode uh, uh, in, in the middle of the first season that's completely different, you know, completely different set of characters. And, and ultimately, you know, you just have so much, uh, such a great world to explore. 
I love that. That was the Dark Quiet Death one, which yes. is kind of like a standalone yes. episode. So you roam through the different levels using your flashlight to kill the monsters? Very close. Uh, you don't kill the monsters, you just push them back. They're a metaphor for fear and mortality. Well, I'm, I'm confused. How do you win the game then? That's the best part. There's no winning. Yeah, th there's no evil boss. There's no glorious ending. It's it's like actual life. You know, you just you're just surviving as long as you can. That was fabulous, and I love how it ultimately plays back in to the series. But it was a really nice piece that. So I was recommending the show to someone and they were like, ah, I'm not sure. And I said, okay, well, you could watch this one that's kind of a standalone that gives you a sense of, of the flavor of it. And, but that was great. I, I, how did you decide to do an episode like that? What made you want to kind of create that standalone piece? Well, I think we, we had just noticed that, you know, it seems like with streaming services now, shows, comedies, series are uh, stepping out side of the box as far as what it is that they feel they can do within a season, not only a number of episodes and the time and length of each episode, but just having sort of one-off throwback, something like completely out of left field, because I think you're appealing to an audience that's binging now, as opposed to coming in every week at a certain like time. And so it, it hits them differently when they're on a run of four, three or four episodes in a row, and then they get to this one that's like completely not in the same world. Um, you can just do stuff like that. So we, we'd always thought, well, it would be cool if we did like a standalone episode that was just about the video game world in general. And actually that particular episode started with us talking about wanting to do an episode about video game marketing and the way that video game marketing has evolved over the decades. I just went to a really wild meeting with marketing. They're vampires. Parasites. But some of the research they did, when you actually go over all the analytics of everything. Like focus groups? Yeah, some of the focus groups that they did, but they actually- We agreed we weren't gonna do any focus groups. And we're not doing focus groups, they're doing focus groups. Because they're imbeciles. Morons, but they came up with some interesting stuff that we don't have to take. Great. It's just the thing that they kept coming back to about our game. They want to be able to kill the monsters. They would like to be able to kill the monsters. Yes, of course. That completely tracks for them. That's why you don't ask John Q. Meatbag his opinion on things. And I agree. Mm. But Montreal thinks that that would bring in tons of new people to our game. Eluding the inevitable is what our entire game is about, right? right? So if you all of a sudden can kill the monsters, that changes all of that. That's not our game. If the monsters die, our game also dies. Yes? But if we had the art department make the monsters look like your mother, would you be okay with a wholesale slaughter then? We both know there aren't enough pixels in the world to capture a monster of that magnitude. <laughs> so true. And then after having broken that for a while, I think we had just sort of collectively were like, well, nobody's gonna care about this because the people that aren't tuning in that really care about video games or history or advertising history are gonna watch this and go like, yeah, but so. And so then um, the in the we injected in this romance. Okay, picture this. You and me in here toiling to bring our bleak message of fatalism to all the little boys and all the little girls suffering from unearned optimism. That's all I've ever wanted. 
uh, of these two people who are following one game. So we could still see the way that the marketing um, and uh, affects the game and the rise and fall of, you know, it becomes super successful because it has, you know, these commercials and it airs during X-Files and like all of that stuff. But yet, what does that do to the quality of the thing that they're making? And that sort of thematically links up with what we were talking about for the entire season between Ayn and Poppy. Two people have come together to make this product, which they're always supposed to put first and they're supposed to prioritize, but ultimately other things get in the way. And um, it's a question of commerce and creativity and all of these things that were balancing out. So once we honed in on it being this romance, this death of this game, but also this romance, then we started really no, like seeing how it would appeal to most people. And also the ways in which it thematically linked back with the rest of our season. And because we, um, one of the nice things about working on streaming as opposed to network television, we write all the episodes first before we shoot them. So once we cracked that, we had an ability to then go back and sort of layer things in to the season as a whole so that um, it would feel more connected. Well, and it hit a really nice emotional note too, because you're going along and you think you know what the series is like. And then it, it, I mean, it had a real sweetness and humor and a genuine kind of, you know, bittersweet tone to it. And it was just, it was a great, like you said, I mean, in terms of like plotting out kind of a course for people, it was a nice change of pace. Well, I think, yeah, for us also, we, we like to have a change of pace too. <laughs> you know, we, it's always fun. If you have the freedom to, to do something different, it's, I mean, even doing something different from when we work on Always Sunny, that's just different characters. It's a different, it's a way to, to tell different stories and, and to have characters with more depth and humanity. And ultimately, if we can kind of create a show that has, you know, big laughs in it, hopefully, as well as touching moments, if we can, if we can swing for that and, and hit the ball on that, we, you know, that makes us happy and, and stretches us as artists. As with everyone else, the show had to deal with the pandemic. <laughs> and you guys came up with a quarantine episode. So what was the genesis of that? Well, we were bored. <laughs> we, did not, we didn't have anything to do. <laughs> Listen, I've got two kids. And uh, <laughs> no, um, yeah, we, I think, you know, we, we were in the middle of recording our first, uh, or uh, taping, f filming our first week uh, of the second season. You've forgotten the word for it. It's been so long. It done. was on one of those, those big box areas with a lot of people, a soundstage. <laughs> um, <laughs> I still got it. <laughs> um, uh, no, so yeah, so we, we had just, we just started, you know, we just started going and, um, and we we shut down sort of in the middle of that week. So we were just really excited to to get going. And then unfortunately that happened. And uh, and I think ultimately we wanted to to keep the crew working. We saw an opportunity to kind of to tell a story that, like you said, could connect with a lot of different people outside the video game industry, where we could touch on both the the, the mental toll it takes. Uh, the physical toll, the adaption that you have to to make, even with dealing with having to to zoom and and learn that whole new reality. Um, so I think we just we saw an opportunity to tell a great story, uh, and um, and everyone was ready to <laughs> was willing to work. Uh, as as Megan said, we were uh, ultimately bored and wanted to uh, to kind of get back to it. And so what were the challenges of putting something like that together? Because you basically had to have everyone shooting in their own homes separately. Uh, how does that kind of impact the way you script something and the way you get your comic timing and things like that? 
I mean, it was nothing but challenges. It felt like it was not, it was like making a completely different thing than we had ever done before. Um, uh, thankfully, we had shot a season um, together, this, this uh, cast and crew. So there was a familiarity there that I think really helped because ultimately it was very invasive to the actors' homes because we were sending them um, kits, essentially sanitized kits that had iPhones and camera stands and lighting and things to put on their walls so that it would feel more like their characters and you know, everything, trying to compile costumes from things the actors had to um, using their spouses or roommates in order to help us, you know, hold things in a certain, I mean, it was just a, all, it was all hands on deck from everybody. Um, and it was incredibly, um, we had to do it very quickly because we knew that we needed to get the episode out during quarantine so that it would have maximum effectiveness. And so from conception to um, airing, it was three weeks, which just boggles the mind to think about. So as far as how it affected the writing, um, we wrote the script in three days. Um, we were nonstop chatting and uh, rewriting and reworking things. Um, we, we had to come up with a certain amount of, um, of tricks, like for instance, the moment um, with Poppy and Ian at the doorway, that sort of came out of, the, this is where I sit when David and Rob and I Zoom, and that came out of um, the fact that I have this doorway in the background and we started talking about it would be interesting as a way to tell a story to not have the characters always be delivering story into the camera, but maybe the camera is picking up something that it wasn't supposed to see. So you have this other layer of like intimacy. And so things like that, we were like pulling in, I mean, from our lives, stuff we were talking about, um, all that sort of stuff, that, that moment uh, where they do meet in the doorway, it's not Rob, it's actually um, Charlotte who plays Poppy, it's her husband, Baden, dressed up with a mask and long sleeves and everything to look like Rob and helped a little bit with like visual effects, um, standing in their doorway because we didn't want to break quarantine even to, to have those two actors um, hug. So it was a lot of like new experiences, I think for all of us, and I was just, I mean, to me, it, it, and I'm sure David would say the same thing, it really elevated my uh, understanding of what everyone does on our show and, and like my, my respect for the every single crew person, because usually you're not watching them do their job in order. They're just kind of handling it and you only notice if there's a problem. But now you're actually watching each person like perform their job. And a lot of times you were performing it, the actors were performing it um, for themselves, hair and makeup and costume, everything. And so I think we all just, it really bonded us in a way kind of relative to like what happens in the end of the episode, we had that moment in making the show. It felt like we all came together to have this cool triumphant moment. And it was, it was certainly the highlight of my um, quarantine experience. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it reminded me of, uh, of making, what we got into it originally in the first place when we first start out, which was editing things on your computer or, or, or shooting stuff yourself. It, it had a very homemade feel to it. That being said, we had a crew of hundreds on us on these, these calls watching and directing, uh, and helping. Um, but yeah, doing my makeup is no easy task I've learned. And, um, and it, so it, we all sort of, it was sort of all hands on deck and, and there was something really fun about that. We, we also knew that, um, that um, we we wanted to 
to do things that were, you know, a lot of people have been doing Zoom jokes and things like that uh, from Saturday Night Live to different shows that were, were doing really funny stuff. And so we wanted ultimately in terms of the storytelling to tell, to tell stories that touched on everyone's experience but didn't feel just like a gimmick. And so I think that's conversations we had in the beginning of what can we do that will connect with people, hopefully. And even if you're not in the video game industry, everyone can identify with, with that moment in quarantine that you've had. Um, that doesn't just feel, because the gimmick thing will, of, of being on Zoom will, will, will fade fast. And uh, what can be sort of interesting stories that we can tell that everyone can, can identify with? So those were some of the conversations we had in the uh, half hour or so before we had to write it. <laughs> well, I have to say that the business with F. Murray Abram it, it totally described everything in my family Zoom meeting that we do every single day, and I died laughing watching that. Look at the video icon on the bottom left and then click that. Ah, uh, oh yes, here. Yes, yes, I can see you, perfect. Oh wait, I can't hear you. No, 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 there's no audio. Um, okay, click the unmute button, bottom left. No, no, no. This is an audio FaceTime. You see Don't. me now? I just Facebooked you. I mean, the, the amazing irony of those scenes is that in order for us to capture them on film, Ephmer Abraham had to deal with an impressive amount of technology. You know what I mean? He had to set up his own camera, adjust all the features, connect like it was the stuff that he had to do to get to the place where he could pretend to not understand technology <laughs> is like <laughs> mind-blowing and he was such a good sport about it Stop pressing uh, oh, here, buttons. let me try this no ah that's better what are you doing on the other side hold on let me try something else just stop no yeah. just stop pressing buttons how's that is that better just leave it the way it is this is insane this is truly <laughs> Hey, I, hey see I see you. You see me? You see me? No, I, I mean, yeah, sure, but you're a panda. A what? What? A panda. A panda? You must have pressed the wrong button, okay? Because wait, wait, you were just wait, pressing wait. buttons. There's an, echo. There's an echo. The rehearsals were very similar to the actual on screen. So <laughs> yeah. in a way, we were like, can we just use this? I, this this feels very similar. Can we just capture uh, this? No, we can't capture it because we're trying to set up his camera <laughs> so that we can't capture it. That must have been an amazing uh, task for your editor. <laughs> putting that all together. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and even editing was like a new process because it would be like the editors would FaceTime us and then and then show us their screen so we could watch clips and then give notes. And I mean, that was even new because usually we're sitting right next to them, you know, being able to run stuff back. And so every, every single person that was involved in that production absolutely worked their butt off. I mean, they earned the, the money for those weeks for sure. And whose idea was it to come up with kind of, I don't know if this is a spoiler, but uh, whose idea was it to come up with this kind of Rube Goldberg device that ends the piece? Because I thought it was a really great way to show people coming together, but without kind of that overt sentimentality you sometimes get when it's this very forced sense of like, oh, we're coming together and, you know, sharing this moment. But it was really creative and clever and fun and it was sweet too i mean at the end of that thing i think we were all kind of like just a little teary-eyed going like oh it's just what we needed yeah i think we wanted something at the end that would be uplifting ultimately you know even uh, we have you know a couple of our characters feeling feeling isolated etc and and dealing with those emotions but then ultimately we wanted to end on something that 
felt like, you know, even though we go, we're going through all the separate where, you know, we can, we are also going through it together and, and we can work together to, uh, to make this as a, a good a situation as possible. And that ultimately we're all connected. Um, so I, I think that's just, it came out of us wanting to do something that, that ended on a uplifting note. And, um, I think we weren't, you know, the degree of difficulty in that execution was high. Uh, cause if it didn't, yeah, we didn't think about that. <laughs> no, we, we didn't. When we came up with the idea. Yeah, I was just like, wouldn't it be cool? <laughs> uh, but our production designer is awesome. And, and, uh, he was really into, I think he's, he, he said, oh, me and my son are, are really into, uh, into all these Rube Goldberg, you know, there's some video, there were videos that were circulating certainly at the time that were, uh, Rube Goldberg things that, uh, were just one guy doing like these really complex Rube Goldberg machines. And, uh, so he was super excited to, to dive into it and, and come up with each person's different um, little, little piece of the puzzle. Dana, here we go. This is what I want you to do. On the count of three, I want you to poke the bottom left side of your screen. Got it? Okay. One, two, three. Rachel, <laughs> grab a chip. Shit, that was better. That was cool. Can we do it again? If you want this to be really cool, we're gonna need more people. Preferably men. What are kind of the future plans for the show? I mean, it seems like it's so uncertain right now. Right. Uh, plans, you, <laughs> that's a four letter <laughs> word right now. Um, it's, I, I, I mean, we are, so we're re season two, we, we were, we had written com completely and we were about to go in production as David said, and we shut down a weekend. And so we always knew that, I mean, we would need to rewrite it to be in a world that in the world that we're in now. I mean, the show, unlike Sunny, we've tried to make, um, Mythic Quest very grounded in our current reality. And it felt like impossible to just shoot 10 scripts we had written before any of this happened and just call it good. So right now we're in the process of adjusting the scripts. Not that they will, will all deal with the, the quarantine because I, I think we have a, we think we're predicting that maybe when, by the time these episodes air, people won't want to be talking about it all the time. Um, but, uh, and because we don't even know when we're going to be allowed to shoot them. Um, but it's, it is a very like, um, uncertain time right now because we there's also a thing with comedy where you don't want to sit on it for you don't want to write it all and then sit on it for months and not do anything with it because there's a sort of liveliness I think I think I read a quote once of describing comedy as like a frog you know like if you endlessly dissect it it dies in the process like that's that's the sort of thing you kind of got to let it go pretty quickly so I think we're just waiting for any kind of news for how we're gonna shoot any of this but I'm very excited about season two I love all the stuff that we're writing it's with an ensemble I I think the second season is one of the most exciting seasons because it you've established the main the central relationship of the show which is between Poppy and I and now we have this ability to like flesh out all these great um ensemble characters we have and so I'm I'm excited to do all of that when and if we'll be able to gather again well, it's just funny because I was talking to one of the writers from The Walking Dead, and he said they've hired an epidemiologist now on staff. Wow. <laughs> it's like, is that where the future is? Yes. I mean, 
That's interesting for that show too, because it is in a way about like <laughs> something that's spreading. Yeah, we don't know, honestly. I mean, that's that's probably the honest answer is that uh, just like the rest of, uh, of the country and the world, we don't know when we'll kind of get back to some sort of normal. Uh, you know, our, our job involves putting 200 people in a room at close proximity. And especially if you have anything with background actors, uh, then you're, you know, bringing in a bunch of people uh, and it, it's it, that we has to all be considered and weighed and uh, we all have to feel comfortable with uh, and follow certain guidelines. So, you know, all, all that um, is to say that we don't know really right now, but hopefully we can um, get back to it uh, in, in some form as soon as possible because, you know, we have these stories that we want to tell and that we're excited for people to see and people are just going to need more content, honestly, uh, want to watch more, more things. So hopefully we could find a way to provide that. Uh, and, um, but we will see. And one last question for both of you. Can you talk about the particular style of comedy? And I don't know, I know I don't want to dissect the frog too much, but uh, you guys have a really great way of it's like you tackle stuff that's very contemporary and you deal with issues that are serious, but you also have this irreverence about dealing with it too. And uh, I just really admire the style of comedy in this and in It's Always Sunny. And I don't know if you have some sort of approach or some sort of way of describing how you think you tackle it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I would say that it's hard because we, we just try to make what we think is funny um, and that comes with a certain sensibility from just having worked together for a long time. And I think, <clears throat> so, so I think that it always starts with that. Of like, well, what, what do we think is interesting or funny? Then after that is what is, what is something interesting to say um, that gives a compelling argument for, to both sides? You know, something that can feel like it has something more to say than just being funny, ideally, which is, we do a lot of obviously satire and, and sunny. And a lot of that comes from Rob and Glenn and Charlie as well, certainly. Um, but I, I think ultimately, um, we we just try to say for ourselves first, like, do we find it funny and interesting, and 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 go from there. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think like if you chase what you think the audience might like, I think that there's a certain uh, they can tell that there's a certain amount of pandering involved, and that doesn't affect people as well as when you open yourself up and tell stories. So for instance, the quarantine episode started with a lot of Rob and David and I talking about, I mean, we were anyway, but our experiences during the quarantine and coming from that place of like, what was our reaction to it, our emotional, what's honest for us about like how it felt. And then, and then thinking about these characters that we've created and extrapolating from there as opposed to thinking about, well, what does the audience need to hear right now? Because then it sort of seems like we're just giving, I don't know, it just doesn't, it doesn't come from the same place. And I, I personally, what I really liked about the episode was that it felt like it in some ways allowed me to put into words what I had been feeling that I kind of didn't know exactly how to, enunciate and so sometimes I think that, that that's what's I mean that was so good and cathartic for me to like make this experience and the reaction that we got from from lots of people was like oh in seeing that I sort of realized that that was what I was also feeling and I think that th those kind of connections can only happen if you start from a place of like being really honest with yourself first um, 
And uh, so, yeah, so that's what we were trying to do. Um, we weren't trying to make it seem like it was all going to be better or a rosier picture than what it was, or that it was all sad all the time, because obviously it hasn't been sad for everyone, hopefully all of the time, but there are these ups and downs and we just want to have the ability in the show to be able to show both sides to to take moments and do really heartfelt, sincere things, and then also um, be be funny and raucous as well. Okay, I want to thank you both very much for taking some time out of your quarantine to talk with me, and I'm very much looking forward to another season of Mythic Quest. Oh, thanks. Oh, great. Yeah, thanks, thanks for talking. Yeah, and uh, thank your son for watching as well. We appreciate any. Uh... <laughs> any support first day of quarantine we did the uh quarantine episode of it's always sunny followed by the <laughs> the one where the storm hits oh yeah yeah, yeah. you're really yeah you're really hitting the uh, timely ones yeah yeah so that was i we were sitting at home and i'm like oh what do you want to watch and my son's like you know it's always sunny has the perfect episodes <laughs> to deal with this so yeah uh, great all right well yeah. thank you that's great well thank you very much That was Megan Gantz and David Hornsby, two of the creative forces involved in bringing Mythic Quest to life. The show's first season and bonus quarantine episode are available on Apple TV, with season two planned for release next year. Thanks for listening to another episode of Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, please recommend it to a friend. That's the best way for us to expand the audience. I'll be celebrating my 200th episode soon. I need to decide what topic would be appropriate. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Agamondo, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.